Alright guys, welcome to CLD Talks. I'm your host Connor Maxwell. Today I speak to John Loughton, who was the youngest ever chair of the Scottish Youth Parliament, and now he is the CEO of global leadership company Dare to Lead, and is also the founder of Scran Academy, who provided 150,000 meals during the global pandemic. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Here's John Loughton. John, it'd be great if you could just tell us a wee bit about yourself and your career in CLD. Hi, hi there. Uh, thanks very much. Um, at the minute, I am chief exec and founder of an organisation called Scran Academy. And um, eight years previous to that, I was uh, running an organisation called Dare to Weed, which is my, my, my own social enterprise. And I suppose previous to that, I'd been involved in a number of, I suppose, CLD, youth work, uh, community development organisations um, since the age of 11, I suppose, I run my first <laughs> campaign um, back in North Edinburgh um, when, I was, um, when I was younger. Um, mainly, it's quite an angry response to poverty, to watching young people not have opportunities to sort of the very early days of seeing inequality. Um, and I suppose people in communities like that, like myself, who were sort of angry or feeling the effects of what you learn is social disadvantage, I suppose. Um, it's often CLD and community-based organisations that are that are there for you, that are that are able to be that very agile capacity builder and um, advocate supporter. So I kind of started super young, obviously just getting involved in, in making wee bits of noise, but um, I, I suppose there was local youth work organisations and in a, in a sense local church organisations and, and other groups that were became a wee bit of a, a solace and, a, and a, safe, a safe space for, for us to start to get involved, to, to think about our ideas and express ourselves. Um, and then I guess since there, I just tried to stay kind of, stay loud and stay, um, stay honest as much as I can, really. Um, so went on to kind of locally get involved with setting up the first ever youth forum, at the North End of Young People's Forum, as it was in the area at the time, not really knowing what I was doing, but just passionate to try and make a difference and, you know, helping to put on, you know, local community events and stuff, which which was kind of um, involved in that for, you know, five, six, seven years, but very, very locally before I then started to get more involved at a, a citywide Edinburgh level yeah. with different youth work organisations, which then started to, so, I suppose, um, springboard me into the more national opportunities, you know, largely through the, the Scottish Youth Parliament, which I went on to be elected chair of in, oh, what, 2007, um, up in Dundee. Um, and, and, and I guess that was then the gateway to get involved in a whole range of, of national opportunities, um, which I guess in a role like that, you get put into a leadership role um, within CLD, if, if you call it that, youth work, youth participation, kind of civil society Scotland perhaps a lot quicker than, than you ever usually would in a more traditional paid career when you're in your, in your 20s and upwards. Yeah. So I got a bit of a, it was like an apprenticeship almost in leadership, that that sort of stuff, which then fed into the kind of more traditional career stuff, which I'm sure we'll come on to. So what sort of stuff did you need to do in the, when you were the chair of the Youth Parliament? Oh, it was um, just absolutely intense. So um, everybody... Uh, I'm sure we'll know listening to this probably that it's obviously a youth-led organisation so 
as chairman of the membership, you're also you're also chair of the board of trustees, um, and you're the sort of primary figurehead and face of the organisation. Particularly at that time, you know the model was very um, heavily reliant on a, a youth-led approach. So you know. You know, you obviously have to do a speech and go through a traditional sort of election process to, to be elected, which in itself is learning, and you often have to do your your warm up and prep work and getting to know people and, and establish your alliances and partnerships and develop your own tone of voice and what it is you want to say about the world. But um, nothing really prepares you for that role. You know, chairs of trustees are often, um, with respect, changing now, but but far older, more experienced, often. Yeah successful and or wealthy individuals who kind of take on that position but um you know you you manage uh, the membership you know i was line managing a team of i can't remember 10 people at the time um wow. just crazy people's you know careers based up at, um a nice big fancy swish office as i used to think it was a big posh place in the middle of um, haymarket which you know had that hospital smell when you walk in that posh <laughs> with nice carpets and shiny tiles and receptionists and stuff so but um, but yeah, I, you know, I had one on ones in Parliament with the, with first ministers, and you know, would be would be invited to garden parties. But then I'd also have to, you know, and uh, be be on stage speaking to sometimes thousands of people. Um, but also, uh, you know, the, there was a diverse of that. Sometimes I'd, I'd be in the office till super late at night, sitting, you know, signing off a uh, a newsletter that would go out to a couple of thousand people, or you know, behind the scenes developing a chief exec local authority engagement strategy, or yeah. you know a whole range of different things just to work with the team to oversee that. Um, it also meant going over to, to Malawi and Africa and, and doing, you know, exchange programs there and some of the, the you know, the life forming opportunities that that brings as well um, and getting around the whole country. I think I got to 30 of the 32 local authorities in a couple of years that I was, that I was involved in the leadership of the youth parliament. And I think it's something that not people really understand the massive role that you actually have with being the chair of the youth parliament. Because there's a lot of times we've got young people that are maybe involved in the youth parliament at local levels, but you don't realise just actually how much work is involved in being the chair, and it is a proper proper role. Absolutely, and then you start to feel that um, you know the rest of the world looks in on you and your peers see your peers as young people in the membership and that's absolutely right but you're somehow disjointed really quickly as well because you have a, a duty to position the organization strategically and effectively so you almost feel to an extent as well your peers become other chairs of other organizations national organizations and other you know chief execs uh who, who are often the people doing a similar i'm going to say circuit for one of a better work but you know at the at the political meetings or at the the sector kind of conferences and stuff like that you're often the same people on the speaking platforms and stuff you know at that point there was very much that that we tripod of um syp youth link and, and young scott you know we're, we're all based at kind of rosebury house um and, and very much work together and there's a whole other you know range of, of member uh organizations and stuff from the youth parliament and stuff you'd engage with so it was um it was a fast learning curve and um uh, and, and just amazing, just amazing, difficult, but but you need to be in the thick of it to to, to grow, and uh, yeah. that, that that was a real opportunity. No, oh, definitely. Man. So, what was next after that? Well, um, I think <laughs> um, I took a quite a spicy and alternative route when I was in the youth parliament, in in the sense that I went off and did um, did some extracurricular activities in the form of. <laughs> 
yes, and so I went off and I, I suppose I can't not reference it. I, I, I went off and did um, a TV show. Yeah. And, you know, at the time I kind of hummed and hawed about, but it was, I always had this very basic principle, right? Particularly in failed or underserved young people that like, like myself, who was kind of fronting being confident or effective or engaged or, or sort of equal in my own mindset. I had this thing about us sort of breaking through and owning our own voice. And I wanted people like me to, to sort of claim our stake in Scotland around talking about the stories we experienced and claiming our own narratives and, and being able to be um, confident and, and capable and valid enough to, I suppose, share our own struggles uh, away from kind of maybe more middle class or mainstream stories you'd sort of hear about life and yeah. part of that getting them engaged in politics and getting them to speak out in the corridors of power where decisions are made and um, I, I know this is a weird connection to doing Big Brother but um, I believe that um, if politics wasn't going to young people we had to promote young people to also reach out and engage with politics and I thought this is a really good platform for me to go and talk about um, the youth parliament and the issues I believed in and, and tell my story and, and show that you didn't have to be some sort of privileged brain box to go on and, 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 and engage and be successful and kind of be a, that kind of, I suppose, that that role model. And I probably never thought about it too developed at the time. It was kind yeah. of, you know, you smelt and felt an opportunity and you wanted to take it. Um, but but it was amazing, you know. I, I think I remember the, the team saying that the youth parliament's website, you know, rocketed by five hundred percent, and all these other things happened, and kind of a lot of great positioning and opportunities to go and inspire and engage with young people. But um, that was the immediate thing I did just towards the end of my tenure, as the, uh, the, the one year I was I was chair, um, and that was a bit of a whirlwind. Um, but I also knew, having not completed university. Um, that I wanted to get behind the sort of headlines and prove myself, you know, be, be authentic and substantial. So um, I actually then, having had a number of jobs, you know, I'd been a detached youth worker and in Granton and Leith, and I was a youth services assistant in, in Edinburgh Council. And so it was one of the, the few times I'd worked in a house yeah. I worked for, for a bit, you know, during that tenure and, and the run up to it as well, kind of mid to late teens. I actually went on and became the policy and communications manager um, at a charity called Fairbridge, um, and it's now part of part of the Prince's Trust. But it was a youth work based organisation that you know developed kind of bespoke programmes, personal social development, as well as kind of more you know outdoors based programmes for, yeah. for young people who were having having the toughest time. So I sort of went and I went into there, stayed within the sector, and worked under the tenure of a chap called Tom Watson who became a very, you know, uh, formative and, and inspirational kind of role model and boss and advisor and stuff for me at that point. So that was my next step, you know, to remain within the kind of policy and position in the world that was kind of young people's opportunities. And so then from the, from Fairbridge, um, one of the things that I remember you'd speaking about was the world, the youth world leaders, the outstanding youth of world leaders stuff. Um, would you be able to touch on that? Um, I, I suppose I'd taken, I started to get involved in a huge amount of international stuff. So a lot of these crossover, you know, I was always very passionate about um 
I suppose international opportunities and and, and stuff and but I guess for a long time I never really connected that that was ever something possible for me it was yeah. sort of a whirlwind of I, I even remember being a very you know awkward kind of shy guy actually recently did an event with, with Bruce Adamson who was the children's commissioner and then um, you know, he was talking about how he remembered when I was really awkward and shy, and I think people normally would think, I write some, no chance, but um, but I was, and you almost have to kind of just find, call it bravado, call it fake it till you make it, whatever, but it's 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 tools of building confidence, and confidence yeah. is the muscle, the more you use it, the stronger it will get, and so, so that's really important, but um, yeah, the international dimension was always something I, I wasn't sure I'd ever connect with, but the youth parliament, you know, it was actually a chap, Derek Miller at the time, who persuaded, persuaded me to get involved, dragged me along, um, and, and, you know, as I say, got involved in my first ever flight, and they helped me get my passport, and, and my first flight was actually to Manchester, <laughs> and then my second flight ever was was to, um, well, back to Edinburgh, but but after that, was, um, <laughs> was, um, I did come home, they didn't leave me there, um, was to, was over to Malawi in in, in, in in Africa to do an exchange programme, wow. then I got over the Commonwealth Network and stuff like that, um, and it started to spread, but yeah, done lots of international stuff, I've been very lucky to now go to uh, over 70 countries and you know you know well over 60 of them has been doing some form of um you know social enterprise or cld or or, or youth representation or kind of motivational speaking work so i've been very very fortunate but um yes i was sort of elected as the um the prime minister of the youth diplomatic service which see me go and work with the g8 and g20 um you know was appointed as um international planning advisor with them um, Commonwealth for the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, which is, is, is a gathering of, of world leaders around the world, which is the largest gathering of prime ministers and presidents outside of the UN General Assembly. And I'm just going, what's this gobby, wee working class, well, big working class ginger guys doing here? And, you know, just, just fell out the side of the pilton. But um, it was it was a real opportunity to sort of hone my craft, learn from others, learn about the, the critical nature of seeing yourself as others see you and the power of internationalism and all these other things really started to started to to engage with me and I've done I've done lots of it and you know since then but always kept the lessons that I learned growing up in youth work in, in North Edinburgh those were the basic tenets about how you engage people how you keep your values really central to what you do and um, is, is really important um, and, and and it's kind of you know I think they're all that's still my my university to this day those those early days of kind of Trying to change my own future by helping other people change theirs. Yeah, and I think that you know that that's such a really good way to put it, and I think that really uh, firms up CLD. You know um, that we are trying to help other people's futures. Um, so how so from doing all this international work, like would you be able to pinpoint like the one key thing or anything that you've learned from doing all this? Because like the stuff that you've mentioned here is just like totally, it's massive. And it's when you're having a conversation like this, like it's just like, oh, I have just done it, but this is huge. Yeah, and you know what? Your path to like success or achieving what goals it is you want to achieve, it it doesn't always feel like you're achieving it or or doing it in the way it should feel at the time, but you just Uh have to keep going. You know, I have a motto in my life that I host, that I hold in my mind every day and every moment, and that's every interaction is an opportunity. And, And, you know, I think that. There is a transformational power 
you know, we can call it CLD workers, we can call it community activists, you can call it, you know, um, youth workers, you know, adult educators. Just that, um, that space that is society, you know, there's something about us realising our power. There's a simplicity to what we want to achieve and just unapologetically going out there and owning it. In the same way that people in um, maybe more mainstream or statutory you know, provisions or organisations or, or places or traditional power holders, you know, the sort of assume and own their authority. I think we, we, as we as a sector continue to do that, I think that is a powerful and transformational um, uh, thing to, to, to connect with. Uh, giving ourselves permission to be audacious, to dare, to step out, to challenge, but to also to love, to nurture, to, to be vulnerable, to, to ask for help, to, and to think differently. Um, you know, I always, you know, sometimes I get a bit worried about putting labels on us. We're the voluntary sector or we're CLD within the voluntary sector or, you know, we're, we're, we're local authority CLD or, we're, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's all these different terms. We're youth work organisations within CLD, within within the, the local authority, you know. Um, you know, put whatever labels that suits you. But I think I've learned the traditional industries or, or paradigms or sectors that we used to have in our world and our sector are sort of not there now you know you know with the growth of like um different charitable models with the growth of um you know quangles and, and, and kind of i suppose um alternative forms of of kind of public voluntary sector organizations arm lens bodies um you know these be micro social enterprises and, and change making models i think it can a lot of it can can really start to be turned on its head i think you know charities in the voluntary sector are playing you know an increasingly larger role in the front line of changing people's lives particularly during the pandemic yeah i think what we're really seeing is a real fifth emergency service emerge um and and for me that's really important i think we are the sort of um the primary custodians of um the, the welfare of communities you know, I think that's a lot of, of fancy language, but there is something really deep where we talk big picture about the role of civil society, about independence of support and advocacy and, and learning. And um, we don't have a dog in the race when it comes to helping people who need help. You know, um, <clears throat> you know, we're not trying to win elections or turn a quick profit. You know, that we'll have a really unique position to be completely fixed on people. We're sort of the people sector in, in, in that sense. We've got a real purity of focus and I don't think we should lose that amongst the you know the frameworks and the challenges and you know we often talk about you know I've spoken to you know tens and tens hundreds of thousands of people you know across this country and others about um, at conferences and things about um, leadership you know dare to lead's very much about that that mindset of going out there and making change happen it's as complicated as, as your mind lets it become and um, it's so easy to, to feel um downtrodden and you know what you hear time after time is you know the only the thing that motivates me is, is when I'm with my users or my workers or my my, my colleagues or my, my young people or, or or you know the people in the group that's what ignites my passion and all the other stuff can sort of get out the way it's sort of jargony and, and problematic but um when when these people who are the the most inspiring we change makers locally you know, realise actually we're very, very powerful through the power of our example and our passions. Um, I think it's really amazing what can be done. And I think any time huge amounts of change has happened or big, you know, successes have, have, have been had, it's, it's often because 
there's 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 people at the heart of that out making making it making it happen. And sometimes the big changes actually feel like very small acts at the time. You don't always connect with, and maybe you should never connect with that bigger sense of self. But um, I think that motivating factor is really important. Yeah, hundred percent, man. Um, so with Dare to Lead, what was it that made you? Um, what made it you create Dare to Lead and? As I got older, I realised that lots of these big, fancy people who used big words and sounded really intelligent and had loads of money and, you know, had big positions. Like, I, I never thought I could ever be one. I always have this imposter syndrome, like, that I never feel good enough. Like, it's... Um, and there's a number of reasons about that. There's a lot of things I hadn't dealt with in myself. And um, yeah. uh, I was, you know, faking it, jumping around. And people often thought I was the confident, successful one, but I never, ever felt like it at times. Mm-hmm. Um and I realised that all these big successes and what I perceived as people being really capable or wise or, or, or you know, oh my God, I want to be as, as intelligent as, as her or I want to be as, you know, suave as him or, you know, I want to be as connected as, as them or, or, or whatever. Um, that actually, at the heart of it, it was really simple. Like, um, and I realised I was in the only prison of insecurity and the lack of self-esteem, despite me faking it. And and dare to lead was an expression of me saying I didn't want to be in big structured organisations. You know, at that point I'd worked, you know, uh, in Downing Street in the, the Ministry of Justice with appointed by the Prime Minister to do stuff on the Calming Commission. And I'd spent a big time in Fairbridge, which um, initially I'd worked in the, UK, uh, the, the, the Edinburgh and Scotland operation, but I was then internally moved and promoted by the UK chief exec to work as part of the wider UK organisation which then became part of the Prince's Trust, which was, of course, even a substantially larger um, and more structured and matrixed internally organisation. And that was all great, but I think I wanted to be more of a, a jet ski as opposed to a cruise liner. You know, I, want, I wanted to have that agility and I realised that I was very people and relational, you know, organised, not, not structural and process driven for me. And that the way you change lives is that... Um, inspirational person-to-person connection. You inspire young people or make people even themselves by building an authentic interaction. So Dare to Weed, initially, you know, I quit my job and, you know, I was on a very, very good salary that I could only ever dream of. And um, um, it was the height of the, the credit crunch and the recession mm-hmm. and there was um, record youth unemployment. And I walk in and hand my notice in and say, I'm leaving. And everyone's like, are you a bit of a dipper? <laughs> uh, like, are you mad? <laughs> uh, and I'm in London. It costs a fortune. I don't really know what I'm doing, um, although I was finding, finding my way. But, um, you know, I'd been involved in other things. You know, I'd run for parliament and still doing a lot of international work. And, you know, different things were bubbling. But um, I sort of had to go and do my own thing. And I suppose, I guess, I wanted to find my value, not just who I work for um, and what I do, but also... I give myself space to go and use my own life journey as an example of how we can go and change our lives and, and you know become who we want. And at the heart of Daring to Lead, the name of the organisation was leadership wasn't a job. It's not a position. It's not something you graduate from or qualify or, or, or born with in terms of an investiture of family fortune. And um, leadership at its heart is about mindset. It was about believing in yourself and others it's about having a clarity of purpose you know it's the it's it's thoughts it's it's the internal experience because if you connect with the values and feelings and your own insecurities and strengths 
the internal experience from a behavioral psychology point of view, which is what I kind of do now, is that then generates and, and sort of manifests the external experience that we call like what happens in life. Um, so that's where daring to lead came from. It was you can you're actually in control of that if you've got the right confidence and compassion and willing to be creative and change, you can go on and do what you want. And I jumped off the cliff, you know, Googled how to fly and just made sure I never crashed at the bottom. And um, it took its iterations. I suppose it was going to be like a, a youth leadership inspiration or charity. And it ended up becoming a kind of all age um, leadership development organization. You know, we started getting clients like um, RBS and private equity firms and lawyer legal, you know, operations and, you know, a whole bunch of different um different um, governments, you know, we're working with small governments like the Isle of Man government right through to um, overworking in the States and, you know, in giving a leadership speech in the, in the White House or, you know, um, overworking in the UN General Assembly in New York and, you know, doing a speaking tour of Finland and a university tour of, of Australia and just the most crazy things, you know, doing ethical leadership development in Sudan and in South America, you know, just just the most random stuff. But then, you know, the next again week, I might be doing the most amazing residential with young leaders in Canvas Line, yeah. <laughs> or, or 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 doing um, doing doing kind of I don't know, like you know, adult education development programs in in Western Hills or you know whatever. And it just became my platform for me to go and do what I love, and that was engaging people, being audacious, being challenging, being. Um, daft at times, but giving people permission to just open our minds up and dream a bit bigger. Sometimes the day-to-day rat race tones down. It's going to sound corny, but remembering what you can achieve, the art of the possible, like don't accept fitting in when you give yourself permission to go big picture in your own head, which we can all choose to do. You can go and do other, you can go and break the mold a bit more and do things a bit differently. So I see out of just sort of the, a few of the things that you just mentioned there, um, what was the one thing, or was there any of the one things that you were just maybe terrified of, or were you just really <laughs> nervous about? If like you can pinpoint oh. one, because I imagine, man, like a, a lot of these are nerve-wracking experiences. There is a lot of like a lot of very nerve-wracking ones, but again, it becomes your fuel, it becomes your petrol. You know, yeah. I suppose latterly I've spent my most of my time being a, a kind of a motivational speaker or keynote speaker, other people can choose if it's motivational, I suppose, but <laughs> and, or like a leadership trainer. And But I think the first thing that came to my head is when I was most nervous is I actually launched the business in Windsor Castle, you know, and, and of course, um, God rest them, you know, the, the Duke of Edinburgh just went late rest there, you know, this yeah. weekend at St George's Chapel. That's actually the site where Dare to Lead launched. I was at another event, and again, every interaction is an opportunity. I got chatting with sort of a caretaker outside, and, you know, one of the people that I guess the, the, the well-to-do guests at these things would never usually ta- chat to or whatever, and ended up helping his son out with some um, confidence stuff right. um, informally. And then, uh, you know, we sort of ended up leading to a, an invitation um, to, to, to a con- you know, have a conversation where I sort of pitched the idea, I'm thinking about launching this business, could we kind of tackle it onto a bit of a leadership youth event? And then ended up giving me Windsor Castle for two nights and two days. All my guests got to stay over and I launched the business inside Windsor Castle when we got to go and, wow. you know, it was just, I mean, just the most mental thing ever. And I love that paradox about me where I'm from, you know, me going through all the issues that I had in my life with poverty and kind of family challenges and mental health and kind of around violence and drugs and all this just you know pretty much ticking every 
ace score in the box, as we would call it now, but to then be launching in Windsor Castle, my own business. And we had, you know, the Prime Minister's Office and Google and the Duke of Edinburgh's award and, um, you know, all these leadership experts and chairs of big charities all invited in for this national conversation. And I got them there because it was in Windsor Castle. Nobody cared or knew about, you know, dare to lead. But I knew that because of the venue, that would attract people that wouldn't otherwise be ever involved in my business. Yeah. And so that gave me a kind of the shadow and the illusion of this, this is a grand occasion or organisation or this guy's really well connected or whatnot. Um, and, and launching there, I had Nicholas Parsons um, host the event, the guy, you know, the, the broadcaster who, who also just died, I think last year, bless him, but, you know, used to host um, Just a Minute and, and other things. But and he, he emceed the night and we had an Olympic poet speaking and stuff. And this, I looked up at one point and went, this is all happening because I brought them all together. Yeah. We've got the celebrity hosting it. We've got all, you know, the great and the good of, of London and the UK here right now. Who on earth am I to be at the heart of this? And I had to get up and do that initial speech around pitching what Dare to Lead was and around mindset. And I remember just being absolutely petrified, thinking every person in that room is way more capable, qualified than me. But I, I cared about it, so it didn't matter. I had to, had to put that insecurity aside and let the confidence be much louder. Yeah, and you really, you've really bet on yourself. You really took a chance with it, and for that to be the launch, that's that. You know, amazing man. That's totally amazing. No, in a way, it's not like I know I was always going to be okay. Like, and you have to lead by example. You can't have a very um, ninety-five, uh, maybe conventional or maybe unexploring individual working in this sector. And living comfort zone, comfort zone, and expect to have the right to tell other people to dig deep and be brave and re-enter college for the first time, or you know, have the cheek to believe in yourself when everyone's told you you're you're too fat or you're too gay or you're too female or you're too black or you know you're too disabled or you're too stupid or or whatever. You know, you believe that negative feedback from that teacher that didn't see anything in you, or you're completely defined by your challenges. You know, these conversations that we as youth workers, CLD workers, adult educators that we have every day right now in Scotland and around the country, we're asking them to bet on themselves as well. That's at the heart of it. Like, you know, so in a way it's it's no different. I just chose to to kind of keep going and see how far I could milk this and take it and, you know, get to the biggest platform as I can. But but the counteraction of that is sometimes it's to be small actions consistently in the in, you know, one one patch is it's the very it's the very same thing. Yeah, definitely, man. Um, it's just I had just totally blown away. I didn't realise how much that you've done. Um, I'd obviously we'd met when we'd done the conference together. We'd spoke briefly, um, seen your Twitter posts, but I'm just totally amazed at the amount of stuff you've done and the achievements that you've had. It's just, man, you should be really proud of yourself for all this. It's, it is so good. I know, but we're like, thank you for that. But um, also, I look at other people and I'm so inspired by. By so many others and that might be big kind of figures who've been amazing mentors <clears throat> you know in my life I mentioned Tom you know I know Jim Sweeney was on the podcast and stuff previously before and um, just really really great people to, to observe and, and learn from and see and, and and also sometimes you get to watch people that we um, people listen do you ever 
sometimes the greatest le- people to learn from is those that are doing things completely wrong or in a way that you don't want to do it. Sometimes it's the, the ones you struggle with and, you know, it's often a great template for what to never become and, and, and where to steer clear of. So, you know, um, I can't think of any obvious examples and I wouldn't say them anyway, but, you know, just <laughs> what the actions you have and that's what I don't want to do. That's how I'll, I don't want to manage. That's that's what I, I want to avoid doing or I want to take this down a different road. But, um yeah, it's really important. And I think there's a conversation about about us as terms of civil society, about that social space, being that community sector, the CLD kind of um, approach. Um, and I do think kind of, it's, some, it's funny because sometimes a lot of the work I'm out doing now, and this might be controversial, I don't know. I don't know when, or was here CLD as the as the formal prism for, for, for where social innovation or change or community empowerment or people support comes from. I think maybe... Um, you know, particularly a lot of the big voluntary organisations I work with, they don't always talk about it in that formalised CLD approach. Um, and that might be because a lot of it's maybe youth work. So, you know, the youth work models may be at the forefront as opposed to the kind of the broader CLD core yeah. principles. But it's all steeped in that history. And I think it's cool to innovate and, and be different. And we want to preserve the um, the principles and the, and the, 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 the methodologies that we've learned worked and the, the vision and the, and the values and you know the shape of the the, the kind of um, how we do it, the inputs and, and, and the frameworks and the structures that will always change. And I think we need to embrace that. But you know, I think there is something is you know every Tom, Dick, and Harry and Sally is now setting up you know a pay it forward cafe or a you know a social enterprise. And, and sometimes it becomes you know the, the social change world sort of being claimed by the corporates a wee bit. It's all about swish marketing. And, and keeping it really rooted in that proper CLD, what what makes something really good, I think is a big challenge facing us facing us now. And um, being able to sell excellence and, and, and understand what quality is, and you know, obviously there's the the standards council and these things, which are really important in pushing that out. So, um, I think that's a really important learning because I think the the political world, the you know, the main, mainstream education, corporate world, you know, these things generally, they've all got so much to learn from. What our approach has been, you know, I go and, you know, I will do corporate communications training for, you know, a team of a team of staff and I don't know, whatever, right, an architecture firm or I'll be a, a speaker at a, an annual dinner for, um, I don't know, a housing association or whatever. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the principles or things I talk about are often just really basic CLD tools about how to, to listen and engage with people, how to have a values-based approach to things. And um, I think we should all like, be really proud of the stuff we do every single day and and probably no more evident than the last year or so with this pandemic yeah no 100% man and while you just mentioned pandemic um, obviously Scran Academy you've done you've done amazing work in Edinburgh um, feeding so many families and young people um, could you take us just through a wee bit of that work and what you've achieved through the time when um, the pandemic hit and obviously a wee bit also about Scran Academy before the pandemic um, if that'd be alright yeah um, I set Scran Academy up and, and kind of founded it um, actually with a, an old teacher of mine well which, not old, but someone who previously was my teacher is probably a better. All right, okay. <laughs> I went on chalk me, but um, um, I actually did a TED talk about. Um, I spoke about kind of from poverty to 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 power was the kind of idea, and and it was a, a direct a conversation or expression to people who feel like they're the the creep, the weirdo, they're no good enough, the other, the let down, the failed, the stupid. Um, 
which is a deep down how I've always felt. And do you know what? I probably still feel that now, but you just have to build strategies to around it to be stronger and hope that it gradually fades. But but at the time it was a much stronger voice in my head. It was a much more powerful chimp on my shoulder. And um, one of the things I spoke about was the poverty of aspiration. You know, there might be an out in my pocket and no fancy house over my head, but you can stay rich in your mind. And I felt even at school, and we know this for so many young people, um, formal school is trying to fit a square peg into a, a circular hole. Yeah. And um, that at the heart of it is about what Scran is, trying to disrupt what I think is the lazy and broken education system. Um, and I uh, got an email from a teacher saying, you spoke about how bad school was and the poverty of aspiration, da, da, da. When you're next in Scotland, come and see us now. It's it's kind of changed up a bit. So I went in and visited, and then you know you know and it was it's a you know much better school now and all the rest of it. You know it's not about having a dig, but um, the system had you know the, the fundamentals of the education system still there. You know you know since 2002 sort of onwards we had the kind of conversations in the development of curriculum for excellence and all the rest of it. But it wasn't ever actually a curriculum. It was supposed to be a philosophy and a roadmap and all the rest of it. But yeah. still at the heart of it, in each room we have, you know, additional learning or pupil support or, you know, so often where what is seen as maybe the naughty or bad or struggling kids get put, you know, for, you know, what sometimes feels like the quasi-modal quasi tower bit of it or the, the empty bit where it's just about managing behaviour, not you know, not unlocking learning. And not always, but, but often. Mm-hmm. And I just believe that, like, these young people just really struggle in that environment. Like they needed to to break free. It needed to be more interactive and vocational and informal and community based and empowering. And you know, schools have you know, in teaching, you know, they do amazing work. But at the heart of it is a traditional model of six years. It's all about creating those, you know, the outcomes at the end point, which you know, we we mold the child to the testing. You know, the the the, the teaching doesn't you know evolve around the young people, um, and and and. And they needed that support because there's so many, you know, experiences, traumas, insecurities, challenges to, to, to being able to engage in a very formalised environment, which often curtails growth development and then unlocks it. So um, I set up Scran and I, I remember texting and saying, I want something that's kind of a bit like Jamie Oliver's 15 vocational challenge you know and it's all these things about pre-apprenticeships and there's yeah. a bit of youth work in there. There's a bit of informal community based um, education, there's, you know, community-based qualifications, all these other stuff, but it's basically became a social enterprise, a charity that um, uses food to change young people's lives. We now take young people out of the formal um, council education estate of school and they attend our programme instead as a community-based pathway. Um, now, it's not a youth club, but it takes youth work principles of they must choose to be there, they're co-designers, um, in the learning, and we will start the curriculum for wherever they're at. Yeah. And the first six months of a young person's curriculum might be taking that hood doing, talking to dad again, um, eating in front of somebody, whatever. But they'll go through a whole very challenging, quite inspirational program um, of, of using food to change their lives. You know, they're, they're engaged in events and all these other things. And I had no business plan. We had no big team. I had no lots of funding. You know, it's very rare that a new organisation, you know, sets up. Quite often, new programmes emerge from existing organisations. So, we sort of founded this, and it was by and for people from the community I was from. And mm-hmm. um, we don't need 
you know, people parachuting in to save us. We'll do this ourselves. We will keep it in our postcode. We'll be proud of it. We'll redefine the stories about Pilton and Muirhouse in North Edinburgh. It's not about drug deaths and um, police fighting and motorbike um, thefts and, you know, all, all those sort of things. And um, we've been gone now for approaching four years, but um, I, I never worked there. I was sort of chair of the board and, and, and uh, you know, brought on board other chefs and youth workers and teachers and uh, professionals to help run it. We've got lots of bit, little bits of money here and there, but um, last February, we didn't own a single kitchen. I didn't own a single computer. I had no full-time staff. Um, I remember actually we were about to run out of money and not be able to pay the team at one point. Um, wow. You know, three grand in the bank. And then the pandemic hit, we closed down. I got COVID actually. Every pound I had and every event I had booked in for um, for Dare to Lead in my own career collapsed. Um, was at home, like pure sick. And I just thought like, there's a moment in time we need to respond. And this is where not being a cruise liner and being a jet ski, like I mentioned earlier, being small and agile and reactive. This is where the community sector, where CLD, where youth work organizations, where sort of local communities can go. We responded even before lockdown was announced, started to get you know support out and problem solved because I knew when the pandemic didn't create poverty, we talk about like it's created a problem and getting back to where we were and getting back to normal was somehow a good thing. But that's not a good thing. Where we just go back to one in four bairns, not having enough food in their bellies and the school system still struggling to support people with trauma and poverty or you know mums and dads still struggling to make ends meet. Like We didn't want to go back to that. Yeah. So we started to, to respond and it was small scale. We didn't have money, but it just grew and grew. And I kind of just, I was on my phone. I think I do like 80, 90 calls a day. Sometimes it was absolutely carnage just trying to make ends meet. You know, I went from two part-time, very part-time members of staff to uh, I think a full-time team of 12 really quickly and 300 volunteers. We ended up getting donations and I put out a campaign. So I think just under 1,000 individual donations made to us. You wow. know, I put up a crowdfunding page itself, which I think made fifty, sixty thousand pounds personally. And then, you know, we started to leverage support from government and 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 you know, trusts and companies. We, we, because we were out quick, change is often about being rapid and visible at the right times, and we sort of created a bit of a um, magnetic force around that that storytelling around what we were doing and social media. You know, I pushed it out on socials really heavy, and um, we went on to to feed and support over four thousand. 4,000 people. Um, and that was kind of a daily meal. So we pushed it over 150,000 meals that we would cook, source food, cook it ourselves, package it up, um, get the information for the people and deliver it direct to their doors and maintain that relationship. You were trying to get them information and newsletters and we started to get things like, you know, um, kids dental support, you know, like toothbrushes and stuff. We've got, you know, sanitary product, you know, all these other things we could drop off and just be that community response organization that we were never meant to be, but yeah. we always were, if that makes sense. Um, and it went 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 a bit crazy, you know, raising hundreds of thousands of pounds, putting out so much food. We took over six six kitchens across the city. Um, but it was never meant to be a source of the objective. There was a pride there, but handouts were only what we're about. CLT's not about handouts, it's about hand-ups. And there was lots of organisations almost showing off, and maybe we were a bit guilty of it, I don't know, around the number of meals we did, but it was actually about what's the community development happening behind the scenes. So we maintained 
a young person's volunteering program, which became a, a key worker support. One third of our couple of hundred volunteers were young people. I'm really proud of that. We maintained a digital youth work provision, helping young people. Like what has happened around anxiety and um, isolation and, um, you know, all the broader spring of, of, of challenging and negative mental health has been crazy. The breakdown in family structures or the, the persistent lack of them for young people has been insane. When they're told that they're somehow a felon for engaging with their friends, that's often because they don't have a family unit there. And so that's been a real challenge for us to, to step into. Um, there was a lot of people talking about the risk assessment of things and saying we can't do stuff, but who risk assessed not doing anything? What about the, the, the um, purpose assessment, you know, of what we need to go and do to support people? And um, we were only just delivering food, we were delivering, I suppose, wee portions of love, wee portions of community, wee portions of connection. And that, that was really important. Um, and sort of as we started to exit, it was really clear what we had to do was look at that. How do we to reform, rebuild, get back to business as unusual? And we created a whole bunch of programs off the back of that. And Scran is now a known and you know larger organisation. You know, um, with, with you know with a core team of seven, and we own a, a food truck, and we've now taken over a cafe partnership with the NHS. And you know, we're we're being innovative. We're, we're using youth work and CLD principles. It's all about relationships at the heart of it. It's all about being agile and just being a loving advocate wrapped around young people that's responsive to them. So it's not all programmatic, it's about relation. And um, that's that's what's really special and beautiful and you know, and engaging about you know, the, the learning I've had from youth work in CLD. It's, um, it's the most complicated thing in the world and the most precious gift to be entrusted with somebody, but actually it's the most simple thing if your heart's in the right place. And then all that other social innovation stuff and infrastructure that you're at around it, that will come and go in time. But as long as you keep those persistent relationships, um, and people or funders would often say, how did you manage to reach out and engage with the communities? And we as youth workers and CLD staff and adult learners, we know if you're in the community, you never have to go to it. Yeah, I mean, now we're on programmes where we have young people running a cafe in the, in the truck and we've got an, you know, a 15, 16 plus employability programme called Scransitions and we still run an alternative schooling provision. I don't like calling it alternative school because it's not a school and for those young people, it's not their alternative, it is their service. Yeah. Um, so it's a, a community-based education program there for them, where we have you know the federals in from from high schools, and I think there's something exciting. I think there's an step for us sometimes as, as youth work or CLD, we sort of sit on the perimeters and sort of shout in sometimes. You know, youth work in schools or with schools, or you know, there's a wee um, uh, adult education room in a in a in a college or a or a high school or that is a CLD bit. But I think there's something about we have to defend the, the 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 paradigms that we know work around people engagement and community love really fundamentally what you know the heart of it is about the learner is the shaper and, and you know, there's all these principles um i think we need to disrupt a bit more like i do think these you know council run you know services you know are, are often really really effective and amazing but i do think there's something about how do we start to redefine what, what education is and how it, how and who runs it? And there needs to be, particularly in the senior phase of high school, what, what Scran is being is an expression of showing that one size will fail most and that we need to have an alternative set of models for those young people that have huge barriers to, to, to engaging in something like that. And that's, for me, the, the, the kind of 
creative and positive disruption that, that Scran's attempting to do. Yeah, and I think what's amazing for what you've done is, and, and you did hit the nail on the head, it's it's about that legacy, and it's about then, so we're dropping off packages to people, but then what comes after that? So where is that actual support? And that's a lot of the work that um, I've been doing over the pandemic, and what we've spoke about is that it's very well and good doing this, but then what are we doing when we're coming opening back up? Are we still going to be engaging with these people? What support do they still need? Because although we're back to normal, normal isn't good enough because there are so many people that are still disadvantaged. So it's about how do we continue the good work that we're doing supporting these individuals and these families that really do need that support still because normal isn't good enough for everybody. Um, and we know that for the communities that we work in. And we have a job to advocate for that. And, you know, that means calling out government. And that's the Scottish government too. You know, there's no help helpfulness for people struggling and sort of feeling like any one government can't be questioned or challenged. That involves pushing back at the council, particularly if you're in it. That means holding yourself to higher standards and, and making sure you're effective and robust as a voluntary organisation and not just trading on the feel-good vibes and, you know, um, tear-checking marketing. That involves asking yourself some fundamentally moralistic questions about you as a, a, a business around how you're engaging with a community that gives you the platform to, to make money and be successful. And, you know, it's we, we need to constantly um, be asking that because, you know, I, I fear that it will go back to, I'm going to say normal, but how it was, um, quite quickly and we'll want to you know we'll want to just feel that soothing um kind of nectar of pre-pandemic um, feelings if you like <laughs> and, and and i think there is a challenge to learn lessons and ask questions and some of that um is our sector that needs to, to weed and drive that and um we are too often still seen as the, the, the poorer or less known cousins what we do is so fundamental and so ingrained that we don't often express the, the full extent of our value to the extent maybe we should sometimes yeah, definitely. And I think and that's part of why I started this podcast as well, is to get that out there, to get that message out there that we do so much more than people see. So we need to tell these stories and we need to get that out there so that your average Joe can understand what CLD maybe is. They understand youth work, they might understand some adult education, but the bigger picture of what we do and what we can offer, and we need to tell everybody just how good we actually are. And I think you're doing, you're creating a platform for space and advocacy is so powerful. And um, I, I think it's, I think this is a fantastic, fantastic way to do that. And, you know, getting as many people talking about it as you can, you know, and because CLDs and, and, and community stuff generally is so often the, um, the, 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 the vulnerable or the, the luxury item on the menu when it comes to funding and budgets and stuff. And, you know, you know, a lot, you know, we're sitting with a non-statutory, you know, um, sort of status so often in so many branches of CLD um, that um, you know people then realise why is oh that's a shame that youth club's gone or that library's disappeared or that English as a second language program's not there now or I can't go to that guitar club or um, we need to, we need to defend those you know they, they, that that's really critical and that's that's how we that's how we have our our voice claim by doing that but also recognising that um, it's not just about looking after the communities what um, there's there's one thing that makes CLD amazing, and that's the people that work in it. End of yeah. the work, it's the, it's the volunteer force. It's, we didn't do it for the you know the gold plated pensions and the salaries and the glory. We did it because we bloody love it. Um, and um, there's an absolute army of heroes out there who should um, 
be clapped every Thursday night as well and be recognised in the same way and be given grants of hundreds of pounds. And, you know, while the, you know, absolutely teachers and nurses and stuff are amazing, it often upsets me to, to see, to have the failure or recognition for, for, for us um, volunteers and, and third sector and, and, and kind of community uh community-based local authority staff who, who make magic happen and change lives and minds every single day. And I think that we've got a, we've got an opportunity, I think, in CLD and in youth work and um, volunteering and everything to really get that message across, um, especially as things are opening back up. And I think it is, for, for me anyway, it's about remembering those people that when we go back to normal, and I know I just say that, but remember those people when we go back to normal that still need more support and how do we do that? So it will be an interesting, I suppose, year, couple of years coming out of this. Um, but again, I just like that well done in the work that you've done with Scran Academy. Um, when we'd first spoke and I'd heard about it, I just, I was totally inspired by the work that you're doing and um, I'm totally going to pinch some of your ideas maybe. So I'll let you know. I'll <laughs> probably find that none of them are actually my ideas. I've probably pinched them or been inspired from somewhere else. So um, it's, it's the point. And oh, definitely, man. So um, what we'll do is we'll just take us to the last question just now. Um, and I stick this at the end of all the podcasts. So it's just, what advice would you give to someone who's looking to st- start a career in CLD? Mm. Almost lots of things you want to say, but know your why. Why are you doing what are you passionate about? And then never be apologetic. Never whisper when you can roar. Never um, cower in a corner when you can be centre stage pushing it because that is your greatest armour. And stay authentic, stay passionate, stay true. Um, never succumb to to the, any formalised systems. You have to learn to be effective and engage in, in these things, yes. But um, it's passion that changes the world. It's the people that roll their eyes at you or, or sick of your voice or... Um, or, or whatever that will, will be the be the first to recognise when you're, you're creating change upstream and helping it, and um, because it's that passion that others respond to, and you know so many of you will be those people from those backgrounds that have that have dealt with um, overcoming um, an addiction or are coming out, or have went through a, a housing system that's failed you, or a care system that didn't feel like it loved you, or um, have grown up despite parents that should have looked after you or um, have been told that you should be measured by the height of your lowest point. Um, make that all refine you, not define you. Embrace the pain and the ugly bits because um, that will actually start to serve you in really good stead. Um, and it'll make you really human and not just in how you feel, but how you present to others. And for me, that's been how I've navigated what I've done by finding my own voice and story and wanting to love the bits I thought were unlovable. Um, And that actually becomes a really powerful tool because authenticity is the biggest ingredient missing right now um, in a world that's so scripted and and kind of cutthroat. Aye, man, brilliant. I think that's such a, no losing yourself and being authentic. Aye, I think that's really, really important. Really, really important. so just before we finish up then, is there anything else you'd like to add or anything else you'd like to maybe plug or promote? 
Uh, oh, probably can't think of anything major. I've just really enjoyed the conversation. I feel like I sit and rant too much, so <laughs> no, that's, well, that's that's what we want. We want people to I want folk to come on, talk, just do do the thing. We make it organic and we make it good. Yes, I, I mean I do a lot of my ranting on social media, so I'm sure there'll be stuff there if anybody wants to come and yeah. So, so where do we find you? How's what is your social media tags? My name, John Loughton. That's the way to connect in. You can check out Dare to Lead's website and Scran Academy's website and my Tinder's there if you want to come and investigate or whatever you want. But, um... <laughs> Aye, we'll, we'll leave links. We'll leave links. Well, John, thanks very much for joining me, man. I really appreciate you spending the time. Um, I know you're a really busy guy, so honestly, man, it means a lot that you've decided to take a punt and have this chat with us, man. So thank you. Absolutely no bother, mate. Thank you for having me on. Brilliant. Cheers. Just like to thank John again for joining me for this conversation. It was brilliant just to get to know John a wee bit more and hear about his career and all the amazing things that he's done. So make sure you follow him on Twitter at John Loughton and make sure you check us out on Twitter at CLD Talks where you'll get kept up to up to date with all information on the podcast, including what's happening next. Thanks very much. Catch you next time.